From KCRW, this is Lost Notes. Hey friends, I'm Solomon Giorgio. I was born in the desert, came on up from New Orleans. There was something deeply American about Don, and you can hear that in the music he created. This is Christine McKenna, a music journalist, one of the greats. The LA Times, New Music Express, Rolling Stone, she's written for all of them and more. And she's talking about her friend, Don Van Vliet. By the time he was 25, I think, he'd taken the stage name Captain Beefheart and he released his first album, Safe as Milk, with his group The Magic Band. That was in 1966, and the world sat up and took notice of that record. I find Captain Beefheart's music almost impossible to describe, but Christine can. His music had a lot of layers. There was free jazz in there, Delta Blues, Tin Pan Alley. He had a really elastic approach to composing, and he had a really wide knowledge of music. I just saw the thread with a droop body. He had a five-octave vocal range, so he could really go all over the place when he sang. And his music had really complex time signatures, and that made it very challenging to play. He had certain themes he returned to again and again. Nature and the ecological disaster we're all living through, that was a a thing for him that he went back to again and again. Women, he thought, were vastly superior to men. He wrote a lot about women. And he had a very kooky sense of humor, and there was a lot of that in his music, too. Sounds like a glorious, genius, freewheeling mess. But Don was exacting. I think it was very hard to be in his band, and a lot of people who were in his band had war stories afterwards. You can look up the crazy stories if you want. That's not what Christine is going to share today. She's bringing us tapes, tapes of her conversations with Don over the years, conversations that almost no one has heard. Does that mean anything to you, that people appreciate what you do? No, I'm an artist. I, I, uh, thanks for the hand. But, uh, don't touch me. Don has such an unfettered imagination. He just had this huge intergalactic thing going on in his head. Don did not adhere to any of the normal conventions of life. And he seemed pretty happy. When I heard these tapes, I got a sense of what it was like to be friends with a guy like Don. Hope you feel that too. From KCRW, this is Lost Notes. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. There's old gray with her dove wing hat. There's old green with her sewing machine. Where's the bobbin at? She's toting old grain in a printed sack. The dust blows forward and the dust blows back. And the wind blows black through the sky. And the smokestack blows up in the sun's eye.
The first time I heard Captain Beefheart, it was 1969 when I was a teenager in Dayton, Ohio. I was still in high school, and I heard The Dust Blows Forward and The Dust Blows Back on the radio. It was such a strange song. I'd never heard anything like it. It sounded like it just came from under a rock somewhere. And it seemed kind of like a poem. I can't really say like I loved it, but I couldn't forget it. So I tracked down the album it was on, which is Trout Mass Replica. And then I fell into Don's world. Flabby boots, stomp down into the ground. Flabby boots, stomp down into the ground. Flabby boots, stomp down into the ground. In 1979, I became music editor of this really unusual magazine called WET, the magazine of gourmet bathing. And I interviewed a lot of amazing people for WET, and Don was one of the first ones that I wanted to track down. He was living in Lancaster at the time. He'd stopped touring, even though he's still making records, but he was really reclusive. Nobody ever saw him. And somehow, I persuaded him to come into Los Angeles to come to WET's office in Venice. And he drove in by himself in his brick red Volvo, and he arrived with a suitcase full of stuff, painting supplies, cigars, tea. He looked great. He was 39 years old then. He was wearing a gabardine shirt and a hat, and he had a wooden clothespin that he used as a tie clasp. The clothespin was sort of the, the main clue when you looked at Don that he was a very unusual person. I remember he walked into the room, and he said the last time he was there, he was palling around with Lenny Bruce. And he would often say things, he would mention people like Duke Ellington, and I'd think, gosh, did he really know him? And then I would find out, yeah, actually he did. And I'm sure he was palling around with Lenny Bruce. And we talked till about three in the morning. And when we walked down to our cars, and in the parking lot, he had a cassette player, and he played me Jimmy Durante singing, I'm a Vulture for Horticulture. I hate to hear the other people hear me sing this song. But if it reaches you before I do, follow this song that I love you. That's where I'll find you. In my head is my only house unless it rains. We started hanging out right away a lot. I went to a band rehearsal at the house where his drummer, Robert Williams, lived. It was at the corner of 6th and Van Ness. And it was really interesting seeing how he got the sounds out of them that he wanted. You know, he would describe strange things. Like, think about like a toy pig, a china pig, and (laughs) things like that. The slipperiness of the china pig. I saw you, baby, dancing in your X-ray gingham dress. I knew you were under duress. I knew you under your dress. His music had really complex time signatures, and 
it, the music sounds really chaotic, but it has to be played with real precision for it to sound the way he wanted it to sound. So he was really hard on the players in his band. I asked him why he stopped doing music, and he said, because it was too hard to control the people he needed to do it. He said, I'd had enough animal training. There's this writer, Langdon Winner, who did the first big profile of Don for Rolling Stone magazine. And he said that Don sings in a voice most people reserve for telling people to get the hell off their property, which I thought was so brilliant because that is kind of what it sounds like. He does sound like he's hollering. He says that I'm hollering at people. I'm hollering at myself. Chills quick you, voices pick you, crows hex you. They like some post-amavion, wizard kiss and all be gone. Seems dreams, both to forever, bolted ether, creep the ether feather. Sue Egypt, Sue Egypt. In 1982, I went out to Lancaster where Don was still living. He was getting ready to move at that point, but he was still in the desert. And they were shooting a video for Ice Cream for Crow, which was the single off his last album. I mean, the idea of Don releasing a single is kind of crazy, but that's what they were doing, you know, in the dirt, in the sand, out amongst the cactus, in the blazing sun, like at three in the afternoon shooting a video. It was crazy. I was getting ready to write a piece on him, so I recorded our conversation that day, and we most we spent most of the time sitting in the car with the air conditioner on because it was very hot. How long have you lived out here? Seven years in a damn trailer. Look at that Joshua tree. Isn't that incredible? Aren't those things incredible? How do you intend for your music to be used? What effect would you hope that it would have? I hope it gets people up and makes them move. Like I have to. No, I mean, yeah, it's all, that's probably why I do it. I do it out of irritation. That's my drive. I mean, I have to do it. It's like sandpaper on a, on a shrimp. And then I hear it's so damn good. I mean, I can hear through anything. There is never any silence. What's the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome in your life? You're asking some real deep questions. The, the fact that, that I can't be uh, feeling something someone else is feeling exactly the way they're feeling. That it's very Chris hard to bridge. a man and a woman. Uh, I mean, the, the idea of uh, feeling what a woman feels for a man is certainly a hell of an obstacle. Because it's, it's totally different. If someone came along and wanted to travel the same road that you've pioneered, what advice would you give them? Grow up. What step in the music-making process do you most enjoy? Probably uh, just uh, giving it to somebody else and, and hearing it back, you know, getting as close to the flash as possible. Uh -huh. The initial flash, when it gets it burns out to the edges and it gets up close. Wow. She can burn you up in bed just like she said Cause she's a hothead, hothead, hothead She can throw her fire to show She can start a fire to go She's a hothead, hothead 
That's one of my favorite Dawn songs. It's just such an electric, wild, alive song. It burns out to the edges just the way Dawn built it to. Dawn often talked about the fact that people who weren't really up to the task were interpreting the work of geniuses, and that really bothered him, like bad players playing great composers' work or crappy translators translating great writing. So that was one of his pet peeves. I liked Mozart and then I heard him. I just wish I'd have heard him do it instead of somebody else. Now that's the thing. What about French writers? God, I want to know what the person said. I don't want to hear somebody's interpretation of it. Can you imagine it? Oh, and they get so, so laid back. And they, you know, they take the bite, the power out of them. They always do. I heard Stravinsky conduct himself. God, what a difference. Oh, geez. I mean, real artistic. What's the most widely held misconception about your music? Would you say it's lumping you as in the tradition of Delta Blues, which seems to happen a lot? I think so, which is a joke. Hell, I've never uh, dealt with real, real low mathematics. Although I love Delta Blues, but I mean, they did it. I wouldn't go over somebody's uh, pain. How could they think I would? Have you ever heard uh, Hidden Charms by uh, Alec Let me see those shoes. Oh, those are great. <laughs> they don't have any uh, the, uh, denomination. Don was very interested in clothes. And if you look at pictures of him when he was touring during those years, he always had on really extravagant, crazy clothes. He liked putting on a show, but by the early 80s, it had begun to bore him. He didn't want to be the object of that kind of weird scrutiny that cult figures like Don get. And he was just over it. How come you don't want to tour? Well, to be perfectly truthful with you, I really don't care if they hear it or not. It's for me. I mean, I do it for me. I have to. If I don't get it out, I mean, good God. So how do you feel about your audience? Do you feel any sense of kinship with them? No, not really. If they want to come hear it, they should. But if they don't want to, they shouldn't. Do you respect your audience? Yeah, I respect anybody that wants to hear something that they have to go through so much hell to hear. I mean, I'm going to holler at them. I'm hollering myself. I'm hollering at the monster in me. Is there anyone whose opinion you trust more than your own instincts? <laughs> yeah, Jan. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's always right. Jan was Don's wife, and Jan was a crucial piece of the puzzle of Don's life. They got married when she was 18, and I don't think they ever spent a day apart after that. And she made his life possible because she took care of all the practicalities of his life. Don was like a very excited child. His senses were more acute than most people's, so he was always kind of excited. Jan was the ballast. Jan was very calm, quiet, did not want any attention. She just took care of him. I asked him about the first record he ever bought, and he said it was a forty-five that was made to teach parakeets how to talk. 
sound effects of birds? Say hello. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> How I took old that to a then? party once. How did it go? Later, over? years later. Yeah. I took it to a party where there were a bunch of cholos. You know, mm -hmm. heavy things. Yeah. Bad. You know, the women in the angora sweaters and the bunny shoes uh -huh. and stacked hair and spider chick. Anyway, I put it on right in the stack. 45s and uh -huh. like that and they just just couldn't take it do you think of yeah. yourself as lucky i don't think of myself much as a matter of fact i was trying to walk in you know, that's what concerns me i was trying to get back here you know i had to walk back here now why do i have to walk back here why can't i just be here that is always really made me angry that nutty thing that he said left me with an image of him that I've always really treasured. I picture him standing there fuming because he's unable to astral project himself wherever he wants to be. John Lydon was the lead singer in the Sex Pistols, Johnny Rotten, but he's now John Lydon. And when he was doing a lot of press early in the Sex Pistols, days. He talked a lot about Don as somebody he really admired. So when I met John, I said, oh, I could arrange for you to meet Don if you want to meet him. And he said, great. So Don and I went to his hotel lobby at the appointed time. And John Lydon never showed up. And Don didn't care. I mean, he was just along for the ride, basically. So I took him to a party in an apartment in the Fairfax district, which the people at this party could not believe he was there. Because Don never went out. He certainly didn't go to parties. And there he was. And he sat down on some stairs. And people would just come over one at a time and talk to him for a few minutes. And then they'd move on and the next person would come over. He was really lovely with everyone. Once Don moved, we became phone friends, and Don was an insane telephone caller. The beginning conversation is two hours, and it could go up to four to six. I don't remember him ever ending a phone conversation himself. He could just keep going. He once told me that he didn't sleep for two years. And, you know, my first thought was, oh, that can't be true. But I think it's possible. He had the weirdest kind of energy. And he wasn't taking drugs. He was just electrified, always. A big part of having a phone conversation with Don was he would play records for me and probably for a lot of other people he talked to on the phone. He loved playing records over the phone. He said that was his favorite kind of distortion is the way that the phone distorts music. So he'd play me records, sometimes long records, and then we'd talk about what we'd just heard. He always seemed to have all the time in the world, and yet he produced a lot of work. I don't know how he did it. He loved a lot of different kinds of music. I know he loved Etta James and Annie Ross and Jimmy Reed and Ross on Roland Kirk, and he loved a lot of classical composers. Say you won't be back. 
Don made really interesting observations that he'd, he'd say things and I just think, wow, that is just so right the way he said that. He said that Martin Luther King was a great blues singer and he said that the sound of yowling cats was the sound of lovers. He once told me that New York City was, quote, a, like a bowl of underpants. I have no idea what he meant by that, but... Here I am, still pondering it, trying to figure out what he meant by that. And I bet one day it will happen. I'll go, oh, that's what he meant. <laughs> he was transitioning out of music when we met. Julian Schnabel, the New York painter, he was a fan of Don's and introduced Don to his dealer in New York, Mary Boone, and she gave Don a show, and they did a publication. And basically, Julian really changed Don's life by doing that because he started being able to make a living as a painter, and that was he never looked back after that. In the mid-'80s, I got a radio show on KCRW. It was on Saturday nights from 12 to 2 in the morning, and Don agreed to be on the show and take calls. I just wanted to know if we've seen the last of you on vinyl. If I start painting on vinyl, you never know. Pretty much everybody who called in asked him when he was going to return to music, and he would just kind of skate right over that. He never felt like he left music. He just was focusing on something else. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, Don. Hi. I saw that whiskey show, too, and uh, you came out and said it smells like a Robert Mitchum film in here. And I'll never forget that. Um, <laughs> could you tell us about the crow that your dad had? Oh, his name was Smokey. And he flew to a Helms truck that my uh, father was driving and uh, lit on the top of the truck. And he followed the truck around for many years, didn't he? Do you blame him? They had good <laughs> product. Okay, we've got to move on to the next call. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you. Hi, this is Nick. Hi, Nick. Hi. Don, how old are you? Me? Uh, five right now. I'm having a good time, but uh, they hold me at 46, which is a, a big mistake. <laughs> I'm five. Uh, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Don. My name's David. I just want to ask you two short questions. Who's your favorite painter, and do you believe in God? I believe that God was quite a painter. <laughs> Uh, you're on the air. Good morning. Did, did you um, ever carry on a conversation with Ross on Roland Kirk in a Los Angeles jazz club? That's right. I miss him. You know what I told him, the last thing I told him? He said, hey, Don, where can I get something to eat at this hour? And I said, the only place you can get ribs this time of night is in the Bible, Roland. <laughs> he was laughing out of that. He was a great player. Uh, hey, Don. Yeah. Listen, I've got a big question to ask you. Yeah. What can I give my cockroaches so they won't come in my home anymore? Give them a sombrero. <laughs> okay, that's an excellent solution to a, a thorny problem. And now we're going to hear a couple more songs by Don, and then we'll take some more questions. So here we go with Boogerize You Baby. on a dark hood and they were driving round and round vinyl women told me Pinelli I'm gonna move you baby 
few years before the radio show, I'd gone to visit him at his new house. It was the first time he'd ever owned a house. And he was very happy there. It was a beautiful house on a cliff, kind of close to the ocean. You could see the ocean. He had a big studio with a lot of light. And his life was just about painting then. My friend Nick and I went to visit him, and he showed us some of his prized possessions. He dragged them out of the closet, his favorite pair of shoes, patent leather shoes, an Yves Saint Laurent coat he bought in New York. And he gave us a lot to drink, beer, scotch. I was working on a piece about Don. I actually wrote about him quite a bit, so I have a recording of that visit. And we started off with some chocolate cake. I can't eat that chocolate cake, John. I fly around the light like a moth. <laughs> a little fairy. You know, the, I used to think those are little fairies, the little green things yeah. in LA that fly around the lights. You thought they were fairies? Yeah, I think probably they were. Don never thought much of my boyfriends, but he liked my friend Nick. And when Nick left the room during that visit, Don kind of whispered to me about giving me his advice on Nick. <laughs> He's great. He's a great guy. He yeah. really is. Uh, he's like probably he's the, the best guy I've seen there with. Yeah. I'll tell you that. I mean, I'm not saying that you have bad taste. No. Have you ever been in love with a rotten person? Of course I have. Person? Are you kidding me? You, yeah. know, you, you know I have. Seven times. Really? Before I met her. Don was much happier when he was painting. He liked being off the road and being private and not having to deal with just, you know, a touring musician. It's this endless river of people. But he really had fun when he was out there, and he would often talk about nutty things he did on stage. Do you remember that bit that, that I had Art Tripp do, Arthur Dyer Tripp III, at a town hall? I got those shoes at this uh, silly outlet store, uh, him a pair of green suede uh, uh, flamenco boots, myself a pair of blue suede flamenco boots. I was up there talking about these wonderful shoes, these originals that I got that day. Then he comes out and he goes, oh, those are just like mine, different color. He said, the guy told me they were originals. And I said, did you get yours at the Pastel Pond? I used to set up some pretty funny things. Jan, I'm going to disappear. I got to look through a box of family photos when I was there, and there was a picture of Don when he was about five years old. He was wearing a cowboy costume and waving a pistol in the air and just staring into the camera with this kind of joyful curiosity and lust for life. <laughs> and he never really lost that expression. His childhood memories were really vivid to him, and he would dip back into them very randomly and frequently. I know Ray Hutton. I saw her top fall off on TV. Do you remember the big band, the girls' big band? I know Ray Hutton. I was five years old, and I was laying on the floor watching this uh, program. They all watched I know Ray Hutton, and, and all of a sudden, the original Mickey Mouse. Those two areolas looking at me like this with my folks. Oh, God, I couldn't. Jan! Did you hear what she said? Jan? Jan always seemed to be in another room. Don was hollering for her always. He wanted her involved with everything he was doing. Did you hear what Chris said, Jan? It wasn't that good. <laughs> she said, did you laugh? She said, did your folks laugh? Where are you? Oh, God, I've been there talking. You weren't there. Jan? 
Jan, when I said I saw Inery Hutton's tits on TV when I was five, and my folks, she said, a solemn moment. Did you hear that? She's made me madder than anybody I've ever in my life. I love her. I love the tease. I told her that I tease her. After about two hours, Don had a record he wanted to share with us. And that day it was I'll See You in My Dreams by Ukulele Ike. If anybody knows him, they probably know him as the voice of Jiminy Cricket in the Disney film Pinocchio. This is what I wanted you to hear. Is that on? Yes, it is. Well, then you should record this. Okay. Wait till you hear this. Though the days are long, twilight sings a song of the happiness that used to be. Soon my eyes will close, and I'll find repose, and in dreams you're always near to me. Uh, he's, he's really hip. That's a sad song, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that's in the good old days. Yeah. When people really give a damn. Okay. You don't think people write heartbreaking songs anymore? They break my my ears, <laughs> drums out of my heart. They don't get it anymore. No, they don't have it. They don't have it. How about jazz? Any jazz people? I don't think the. I think that the, the first off, I think that you don't play jazz in a hurry, and that's about all they're doing. And I, I don't need that. I go back to Duke Ellington and uh, things like that. Is it, what about him? I, one time he told me... You, you it, met Duke Ellington? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I got his autograph. You know, he says, I'm going out on a, on a little cruise soon. I'm waiting for my chauffeur. And he says, I'm going to go on a cruise with the boys. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know who the boys are? Mafia. No, was he was he going out on a... a <laughs> he wasn't hooked up. The thing is, is that they had, had electricity yeah, and yeah, so yeah. did he. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They had to float. Yeah. And he was going to go out there and play, you know, parties, uh -huh. money. And uh, I said, well, you're waiting. Let me buy you a drink. He says... No, he says, uh, one of us has got to be sober. Yeah, yeah. Like that, he says, uh, my chauffeur uh, will be down in a while. Like that, and he was with a girl, obviously, in a room. You know, and he's out there waiting. I said, well, why would you wait like that? He says, he's my chauffeur. He drives me. Like that, you know, yeah. I mean, in other words, he was real good to the person that drove yeah. him around. Yeah. But he had on a watch. Must have cost seventy-five or eighty thousand diamonds all the way around. Yeah. He had so much class; he made it look like a Timex. Mm. He was great, and he left me saying this. He says, uh, "Keep your top happy. Just keep your top happy, like that." And I said, "I'm gonna try. <laughs> I'll tell you that." Talking to him, he could veer wildly from one subject to the next, and he really covered the waterfront. At one point that day, we somehow were on the subject of God and mortality. 
There was a picture, and the, and the guy, he goes like this, he says, are you there? Are you there? You know, uh, Jesus, you know, God, and he says, are you there? I know you're there. Oh. Yeah, ooh. Oh, you know it's a almost, as good, almost as good as that, as that one uh, where uh, it says, I think I hear thunder. <laughs> like that Noah's Ark yeah. sounds just like thunder. Jan, do you remember? Oh, but I'm not gonna. I'm gonna stay here. Gravity's holding me down. It's holding it all down. Think how high we could jump if it wasn't for gravity. Gravity is the master. I mean, every time I look in the mirror and see that flesh going off that ball, my eyes look like a sunflower seed that didn't quite come off. <laughs> or either that, or uh, a, a real irresponsible maid made up the pillow. In the town? If I could find one, I'd go. <laughs> Do you ever go like, to the movies or anything? I think that's the 1930s. They yeah. had towns. There's nothing happening now. Town is, uh, is going into you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, they blew it. Oh, you know, God. It just doesn't exist. Like a turkey in a storm, like yeah. Sam Lightning Hopkins said. Do you remember that? Long gone like a turkey in a storm. Yeah. Uh, I go down there occasionally yeah. for provision, like a gopher coming out of its hole. You know, <laughs> yeah. I just hope I'll get back. So you read, you paint, you watch television, and you play music. Yeah, that's all I. Well, then the other thing, you know, can I dance? You, you know, one time, Jan and I went fishing at this place called the Eel River, and she caught a little uh, uh, sucker fish. You know how cute they are, the ones with the humpback? They look like a buffalo almost. A water <laughs> buffalo? I mean, a taste of helmet. But we ended up letting the hook out and worried, so worried we were about the little thing. Yeah. And let it go, of course, but we yeah. petted it for a couple. You have it? Oh, oh that's nice. Yeah, but they're so cute. Dad, bring me my black brassiere. Don Van Vliet died from complications of a neurological disorder in 2010. He was 69 years old. Today's episode was produced by Christine McKenna and Gideon Brower. Special thanks to Mark Whedon for help on this episode. I got to see some truly cool photos of Christine and Don together, and you can find them at kcrw.com slash lostnotes. Lost Notes is produced by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our executive producer is Nick White. Thanks to Marion Hodges for production assistance. Lost Notes is made with support from KCRW's independent producer project. Our theme music is by Science Park. Next week, we talk about New Edition's surprising basketball connection, and I can't wait. Also, hey, just tell a friend about the show, okay? I need more friends. 
and leave a review on Apple Podcasts because I need more validation. I'm Solomon Giorgio. Please don't leave me.